We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 58. Our guest today is a show jumper and he specializes in training, sales, and competition at the highest level of show jumping. They specialize in helping young riders move up to the U25 and the Grand Prix divisions. He is extremely goal-oriented and strives to work backwards from these specific goals of himself as well as his clients to craft a training program that improves the horse's weaknesses and peaks their performance at the right moments. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Andrew Wells. So let's jump in. I would love to hear how you got into riding, how that all looked. So I would love for you to start from the beginning. So I grew up, I wouldn't say it's a horse family necessarily. My parents both rode growing up and uh, they never really pushed on me. They both kind of actually had stopped by the time they started having kids. One of my friends on our soccer team actually rode and took riding lessons. And his parents are good friends of my parents. And uh, I think actually through a lot of carpooling, um, (laughs) I would a lot of times get a ride home from soccer practice with him. And he would go to the barn sometimes, have a 30 minute lesson. And yeah, they would... I would just kind of sit there and watch. And eventually I just said, okay, why don't I get on and try this? And about six months later, I think he stopped riding and here I am today. Wow. That's wild. What type of riding did your parents do? Did they just kind of like dabble? Yeah, both hunter jumper level stuff. You know, kind of growing up, my father's from uh, Northwest Ohio. And yeah, so he did a lot kind of in the Detroit area there. And my mom in Minnesota, she kind of had to choose between horses and ski racing and went the ski racing route. And so they both like were very familiar with it. When I kind of got into it, they, you know, in different ways, both each got back into it themselves. Cool. Amazing. Um, So you had started riding you were uh, did you initially ride in as a jumper or were you also in the eck and the hunters what did that look like did the eck and the hunters you know it was uh some you know, from minnesota and they have a great local circuit there run by the minnesota hunter jumper association but we're talking you know kind of late 90s early 2000s and it was you know, I, I, I say I don't want to date myself too much, but this is really back before a lot of, you know, there's, a, you know, before a lot of internet, before, you know, the, the knowledge of what's out there is pretty limited. Yeah. Uh, even at the time, Winter Equestrian Festival is about six weeks long. Our real exposure to the sport would be through Pride Horseman or Chronicle of the Horse that would show up and kind of give you a rundown of, you know, maybe what happened last month or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So I remember you know, always being excited to see those uh, publications. I think, but, you know, I probably did a lesson program for I don't know, the first year I did this and then uh, got a pony named Wendy, medium pony. She was uh, mostly a hunter, but uh, I dabbled in the pony jumpers with her as well at kind of the local circuit there. Fun. I remember purposely going off course one time to jump a bigger jump. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah and uh but yeah so i really you know and i started you know then i kind of got you know i 
progressed the children's hunters on the way up and uh, started with the jumpers and the equitation as well. But it was really at kind of a local level. Um, you know, it was shows from May until September. And then we had our Minnesota Harvest Horse show every October, which was our, you know, kind of our big deal to gear up for. And then when I was about uh, 15, then I you know, was lucky enough to have some opportunities to kind of get exposed to what else is out there in terms of some goals to set and uh, things to strive for. And that was really when I started riding more on a national level. Gotcha. Yeah. What was that transition like? Because obviously there's a step up. Was there different horses involved that you rode, different training? What did that process look like? A few different things. I think, you know, the one thing that MHA really did a great job of was getting good clinicians into, you know, they did a spring one and a fall one quite often. And I remember it was Laura Kraut came and did a clinic and it was... And right she's from Wisconsin. So I'm from yeah. Wisconsin too. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, so Laura came in, she'd just been, I remember that she'd just been fifth at the World Cup Finals on Anthem. You know, it was, so it was, you know, it was already great to have her, but you know, she was already kind of a big name in the area because she would come for our one big horse show of the year at the Minnesota Harvest Horse Show. So, you know, I got a lesson. I got the clinic with Laura. And um, then Frank and Stacia Madden came the following year to Des Moines, Iowa. And we actually went down there for a weekend and got a chance to ride with them. And it just, you know, through that, they, you know, they talk about the medal finals. They talk about the young riders and, you know, other things that are out there. I think it was the first step and, you know, not even just the horses. You know, I was lucky to have some you know, some great trainers, Kim and Andy Barone helped me for a long time in Minnesota. And before that, great lady named Gail Metarazdek. And so I had, I had really good training, they, you know, and I had nice horses with them. I think it was just more about uh, getting a chance to know what's out there. Mm-hmm. And I think going back 20 years ago, we didn't have access to what we have now in terms of the immediate nature of information on you know, through social media, through, you know, all these great websites, the ability to live stream, you know, these Grand Prix classes. And so I think that, you know, just knowing what was out there in terms of the equitation finals and the Young Rider Championships, pre to states, all the way down the line, uh, you know, knowing, you know, maybe you'd heard of them there, but like, how do you get there? Is it realistic? Is this mm-hmm. kind of totally out there? So I think just kind of getting your head around that for me at, you know, where I was located and the country and at that time was, you know, probably the first big step. Mm-hmm. Got it. So at that point, you were still based in Minnesota. And then at what point did you make a move? You, you moved down to Florida then, right? Yeah. So when I was, I'm going to think about this here. When I was a sophomore in high school, about that time, I got a chance to come down to Florida for that winter. And I was able to work out a tutoring program in my school. And that was kind of on the heels of doing a clinic with Frank and Stacia Matt. And that was kind of like when I actually said, okay, I really want to go all in with this. And, you know, up until that point, I'd also played football and hockey. And one thing is like, you know, I love Minneapolis and I love that area, but, it, you know, and, and now they've got a lot more shows in closer proximity, but it was, you know, it's quite isolated that right. area up there and, you know, cause we're really in the middle of the country and mm-hmm. especially in the wintertime, these things happen on, you know, kind of both coasts between it was Indio at the time and Wellington or Ocala. And the trainer who was helping me in Minnesota at the time, Dan Kimbrone, had a, through Alex Shane, set me up to come and ride with Missy Clark in Florida. And so really my last two junior years, uh, I got the opportunity to work with Missy. And uh, I think kind of, you know, right away, I was really hooked on it and uh, went to Europe straight away that summer to ride with uh, she and John and Falkensvard and 
that fast acceleration of that kind of, you know, the opportunity to go to Wellington to, you know, we got to go to Devon to like Placid to some of these, you know, iconic shows and then to go have a chance to go compete in Europe right after that was, you know, that just from that point on, it was all in. Yeah. Yeah. What was the transition like from going, you were going to Devon, you were going to Lake Placid, you were going to Wellington, these, uh, definitely a step up from what you had been doing. And then what was the step up like for them when you went international? It was a whirlwind that year of learning. I think, it, you know, any go show in Europe, it's a little bit of a different feel. I think, I think the sport to some extent is becoming more universal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we're lucky to see some of the, you know, the best European riders coming to the States and riding, not just in Wellington now, but coming for our indoor circuit, coming for some of our spring shows, you know, totally. is one of our absolute favorites and really bummed not really go this year. So we get a chance to ride with a lot of the European riders over here now, but I think at the time, I mean, especially when you're, you know, young and up and coming in the sport, I mean, these become idols of yours so quickly. And the fact that you get to you know, watch these riders on a day-to-day basis is really neat. Um, I think the one thing about Europe is just there's such a real culture to it that you know, not, we have that here, but it's a little bit... Um, one thing I take from it over there, okay, there's some, you know, obviously I wasn't competing at Aachen or, um, like I said, some of the, the biggest shows at the time, but, you know, you see there's almost like a little bit of a level of simplicity. It's like such a part of their, you know, their weekly routine to go to the shows and sure. compete on and you know at all different levels whether they're just training they're you know they're really there to compete with their main string of horses that weekend and whatnot it's for sure different but i i love the feeling of the sport and the industry and i feel like you get really immersed with it over there which is neat Mm -hmm. totally yeah and and currently does your schedule um continue to involve both national and international shows it does it does um you know we do North America, you know, it's, they've got so many great shows here now, you know, last year I did, uh, two separate stints in Vancouver. We went out there for the, I was on the U S squad for the nation's cup there in May. And then went back for the world cup qualifier there in August. And that's a, like, you can't say enough good things about the Thunderbird horse show there mm-hmm. every year for the most part, we go to Spruce Meadows in the summertime. I think within the States, you know, we have so many great FEI events now that, you know, we're lucky. You know, I think that the international level here is, you know, really as good as anywhere else in the world now, especially, you know, I would say from September and through the, through May. And I think, you know, you, see what they're doing in Traverse City and you know they've done some great work in Tryon. But you know, there's some really nice FBI shows in the summertime here as well. And I think, you know, from a Europe standpoint, I think it's situational. I, our plan is I was actually hoping to go over for maybe a month or two this summer to compete. But I think with the coronavirus we we'll have to <laughs> see with a lot of things. But exactly. we're hoping next summer to that maybe we do a good portion of our summer tour in Europe next year. Nice. Very cool. So as you were growing and learning and kind of adding to your show repertoire, uh, what were you finding were some big highs and what were some challenges you were facing? I did feel a little bit behind the eight ball, to be honest. When I was a junior, you know, you're comparing yourself. Like I was, you know, going from doing six, seven horse shows a year at a little bit more of the you know, I'd say the zone level there. And, you know, I think it's easy to be a big, you know, not that it's a smaller pond, but it's, you know, there is some classes that, you know, had five or six riders in it. And, you know, you, you win that there, but is that a great benchmark for where you're at as a rider? Cause you know, you might win with an 80 versus you go to Wellington and 80 is going to be 50. You're not even jogging. (laughs) So I did feel a little behind the eight ball, but the one thing 
that I love about this is that this is a lifelong sport. You know, that you see Ian Miller and Nick Skelton, you know, what they're doing at the end of their careers. I mean, it's, that's probably the extreme. And I think that they're, you know, they're just, they're incredible riders that way. But what's so awesome about this is that you, you know, you're never really too far behind. As long as you have a base on the horse, you can always kind of catch up. You know, I think Nick Delajoy is one of my very good friends and, you know, he didn't really even start riding until he was 14 or 15. You know, he dabbled a little bit because of, you know, his father and their, you know, their family connections to it. But, you know, Nick's a super rider and does a great job. And, you know, so looking back, like, you know, I think you see some of these kids that, you know, they have the record of, you know, what they did at the pony finals and what they did, you know, kind of, I guess, all the way on up the line and the junior ranks there. And I really believe in the system there, you know, the system, the equitation, it teaches great discipline. It teaches very good riding and, you know, the, the whole process that they have here in the States. But I think that there's a few professionals, you know, myself included that maybe didn't go up through that whole pipeline there. So just the one thing I think that if you get into this young enough that you have the opportunity to take advantage of that, that's awesome. And I think you're going to be, you know, hugely benefited because of it. But, you know, if you, into this a little bit later, you didn't have the opportunity, whether it was a financial situation or maybe even just a, a family time commitment situation earlier on to, you know, and, you know, yeah, there, you're probably going to feel a little bit behind your peers at your age group that have been in this for so long. But yeah, I think that the one thing is you need to focus just on yourself because I think that at any point, if you really commit to this, you're able to go a really long way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think yeah, I'd say like, yeah, myself, Nick, I can think of so many people that would be, you know, along the same lines there that it doesn't have to go up with this perfect model. It for sure is a great system. and It's very helpful. But just because you weren't in it from the get go doesn't mean you can't get to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's something that holds a lot of people back that kind of comparison game. And if they yeah. have this idea of this system in their head, and they didn't exactly follow it, that automatically that is a disadvantage. And, and I think that's so true. in you saying it's definitely um, advantageous to go that route. And it's definitely a great route to go, but it doesn't have to be the only route. So I think that's yeah. a really good point. Speaking of systems, let's talk a little bit about your training program, because at what point did you start taking on clients and kind of developing that training program? I've always loved the teaching side. I I love to ride and I love to compete. I actually almost love the teaching more. That's Uh, kind of rare. Yeah, it is. I don't want to sell my love of riding short there, but I do actually really enjoy the teaching aspect of it. And just before I turned 19, I moved to ride with Chris Kapler. And got a chance to work with him for four years. And Chris's system, which is, you know, it stems from the Hunter Den and all of the traditions there, with horsemanship and, you know, the fundamental training principles there. Uh, I got a great opportunity to learn from that. You know, through those four years, that was when uh, I got a chance to ride in the US team for the first time, got to be a part of a lot of really great things there. And when I was 22, then I made a venture to start my own business. You know, it was from a few different angles. But I think you know, starting my own business for me at the time, it was an opportunity to start teaching. It was what I felt like was an avenue to get more horses underneath me to ride. And uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but you have to start somewhere with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that was around 22, I started my own business and, you know, slowly built it up. And I think we've really gotten to a point now that, uh, you know, not saying we have everything figured out, but we've got a really good, system and team in place. And um, yeah, really happy with it. Cool. Um, do you have a favorite age that you like teaching? 
Um, I love working with riders from like, yeah, I would say, I don't know, 13 to 20, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and beyond that, if they want to keep going with it there, but I think, you know, young riders that are really hungry to kind of keep moving up the ranks there is really fun for me. I think that at that point there, they, you know, they have hopefully their basics down and I think it comes a lot more to their ambition. You know, I think mm-hmm. that, and even now the, the U25 series extending, you know, like I said, they, they started out when I turned 26. So I think it's a, it's a great <laughs> program. But, yeah. uh, for sure, jealousy and take part in it. But, um, you know, anybody that's really ambitious and wants to, not necessarily, they don't have to keep jumping bigger, but wants to improve at this there. That's fun for me. For me to stand there and give a lot and for somebody that does this is the total outside hobby that they come you know here and there and i try not to be very outcome oriented i think you know really try to you know work on the process of getting better and improving but they just kind of do this as a hobby and it's just it doesn't really matter for them at all if they felt improved or if they had success that day and whatever success means to them yeah that for me is not as much fun as you know somebody that like really wants this and it's going to come you know i guess guns blazing to try and you know get better and move up or really work towards a goal. Yeah, totally. Let's take a minute and talk about our sponsor. Team Wells offers top-notch training for show jumping athletes and horses through the highest of levels. Wells, alongside assistant trainer Eric Glenn, focuses on producing top results both inside and outside the ring for all of their students. They also offer a wide range of jumpers for sale at all levels with a focus on producing the perfect match. If you've ever wondered how they keep their horses performing at the top level of the sport, the secret is simple. Liquid BioCell. Andrew and the team have noticed a dramatic difference in their performance and recovery, as well as coat and hoof quality since starting the product just 18 months ago. For more information on how you can get your hands on these amazing products for your horses, head over to teamwells.com slash BioCell. That's teamwells, W-E-L-L-E-S dot com slash BioCell, B-I-O-C-E-L-L. Thanks so much, Team Wells. All right, let's head back to the episode. Something that I've a little bit more recently uh, come to find as as a young professional is that there really are kind of two types of riders, whether it's kind of the elitist hobby or whether it's the athlete side. And something that I've come to find is both are okay and it's totally fine, but there's definitely a certain area you tend to gravitate towards. And it definitely seems like your program is really um, specific to those athletes that have that drive to kind of go far. It seems like your program is really known for for that area. Um, and it seems like you do a really great job of taking riders, you know, young riders who are ambitious and, and, and doing well, but kind of in the beginning, uh, stages and then getting them to that U25 program and those Grand Prix levels. What is something, I mean, cause it seems like talking to other young riders who maybe aren't super in tune with the system, what would be kind of your clear cut progression from that stage, let's say you have a kid jumping like meter 10, meter 20, and then the roadway to get to those U25 and the Grand Prix levels. I think it's a little bit different for each person. I say, you know, you have to, I I use the term capital a bit. I think you have to really, you have to look at what you have available to you. And that's not just financial capital, but that's the horses that you might have, horses Mm -hmm. you could have access to, but your time capital, you know, I think that you need to really assess all those things and, you know, try to figure out, you know, what do you have, you know, not just 
financially, but what do you have to put into this year to get to the goal that you want to get to? And I think a lot of that affects your timeline to it and whatnot. But I think the first thing is, is that, you know, you want to have quality over quantity. You want to have both, but you need to have quality in your experiences. You know, so I think it's finding the right horses there that are going to help you learn as a rider. And I say it's always the dream. You know, people say, oh, I'd love to get a young horse that can carry me all the way up the ranks. And, you know, we have a young rider. And, I, and McLean said one time, he said, you know, would you uh, send your kid to school to learn from a teenager? And some person said, well, no. Yeah. And he said, well, it's the same thing. You know, I think if you can get the right horses that are going to be good teachers, they're going to teach the right habits and you're going to move up a lot quicker because you're going to be learning the correct way to ride. And I think having the right horses underneath you is the first step. The second thing is that, again, then it goes into quantity. I think you need to jump as many fences as possible with, you know, quality training and quality situations. And I think that, you know, it really becomes a numbers game. I think if, if you have two horses, it's not just twice as much experience. I think it's more than that because I think you get the opportunity to get in a rhythm. You get to jump, you know, maybe you're in the same class, you have to jump the same course twice that you can go in and fix the previous mistakes. I really think it's like, you know, you're getting three, four times the value out of just by having a second horse there. You know, in terms of the rate and the progression there, I think there's a lot of factors that play into your ability to move up and to do it well, but also to meet certain goals and benchmarks there. And, you know, we have to keep in mind too, that these horses, you know, they're, they're animals, they're not dirt bikes, we can just refill with gas and just go through the course again. You know, they have a certain amount of jumps in them. We need to be conscious of that. And we need to, you know, treat them as our partners there. And so I think, you know, managing the amount of jumps that they can jump, but also helping the rider learn, I think is one of the real key jobs of a professional there. But I think, you know, if you could start in the meter 10 and or 20 let's say if you can even have two horses to go with it if you have more than that that's that's a huge bonus but you know i think your goal would be that and say everything's going correctly but every six months to a year you're moving up the level the jump from doing meter 20 to meter 40 actually isn't that daunting if you really want to commit to it there you spend the time and you you have a commitment to understanding also that you're going to have a few rounds that are going to be learning experiences but you know, thinking about looking forwards, not backwards there. That, you know, that commitment doesn't mean just riding at the horse show and, you know, just going in the ring. That means riding at home, doing the detail work that makes a difference. Mm -hmm, Totally. Um, Obviously, this is super situational and kind of case by case. But let's say you have a client, uh, a young rider showing on Friday or Saturday. What does the week leading up to that look like for that rider and that horse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's totally situational. If we have the opportunity to have the rider with us, which is huge, and you know, a lot of times we're kind of dealing with uh, school schedules and whatnot. Which again, yeah. that's why I say it's a, this. It comes down to capital and the amount of time that you have to put into this. And it, just because you can't put in a hundred percent of the time doesn't always mean that you can't do it. It just you, know, you have to be creative with it. But it depends on if that's the first. Uh, if they're coming off of a show week the week before, I'd like to have you know the first day. Uh, you know, Monday is usually an off day. Tuesday I think is really about exercising the horses if they don't compete until 
Friday or Saturday. It's, you exercise them in a nice way. You don't want to grind on them. You know, you have to remember that they're coming off a day off there, get their bodies moving. You always want to see that you have a long way to go until your main goal. So I kind of try to work everything back from the classic or Grand Prix, whatever that might be there. And, you know, you don't want to take too much out of the horses too early on in the week. So I like that to be, you know, it's a, it's a nice day. And that that might mean working on the flat together, of, uh, you know, just so that we're really in tune. And, you know, even when you're giving the horse a nice day or a lighter day, I would say it's amazing. You tell people to give the horse a light day, and all of a sudden they start dropping the reins and then start compensating their position. Like, no, no, no. I just, it just, means- just bopping around. <laughs> yeah, it might be, you know, maybe you're not doing so many tight circles. You're not, but it still means it's, you know, you still need to have the quality of riding. It just the time might be different. I guess what you're asking to do might be different. I generally try to have a rule of thumb that we have that horse jumps at maximum three times a week there are situations like as a very very few that we jump a fourth time and i won't do it four days in a row it's kind of going to be spread out i mean it could be you know if they have haven't shown in six weeks or something and we need to show three classes with the student that week but they need for me to jump a class with me that would be very rare for the most part i try to look at jumping three days a week there and so Depending on the horse, if it's a horse that jumps, it, like you know, the main goal is that they're going to work backwards from a classic Sunday. Usually, what we would do is do a lesson on either Wednesday or Thursday over some smaller jumps, so that you know, again, you're trying to be easy on the body, but we need to repeat things a time or two. You have the opportunity to do that over smaller jumps, you know. And then I would say the other day there, we might do a little bit of pull work if the horse is good with that. Um, so you're really getting the rider's eye working. And, uh, and then, you know, try to really be in the rhythm to show on Friday. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, that's your setup day. You want to do well on your setup day, but your, your main goal is always your biggest class of the week. Yeah, totally. Obviously there must be a balance between yourself as a rider and yourself as a trainer. Um, do you find like you're constantly trying to find that balance or do you feel like at this point in time, you're kind of leaning towards focusing on one area over the other? Yeah. To some extent, in order to be successful in life, you have to come to terms with the fact that you're always going to be working for your balance. I mean, whether that's, you know, your balance between your own riding and your teaching or your balance between your ability to, you know, your, your family life, your level of fitness. I mean, I think that you're always going to be, you know, you're, you always need to have checkpoints with yourself to be honest about those things, but you know, you're not going to be perfect at it. And I think that's, you know, that's something you have to be realistic about. But I think it's, you know, you have to also view it as how they complement each other. Um, you know, I think for me, teaching, I actually, I learn a lot about my own riding just through teaching. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll, I'll actually vocalize something there. And it might not be something I necessarily think about myself or I'll remind myself of, you know, little details I need to be on. And I think it's a really healthy thing for my own riding just you know, to go out and teach. Because I think I, I keep myself on top of the details then. And I think that, you know, the more your mind can be actively engaged in, you know, what you do professionally, um, I think it's in a, in a healthy way, it's a good thing. That being said, you need to really be able to break out when you need to focus on yourself. And, you know, we have, you know, not just financially, but, you know, we have, you know, we have a lot of interest in my career in terms of, you know, the work that we put into it, you know, with, with my main team and Mario and uh, Alex and Eric, kind of my main group that really is behind my success there. So, you know, you need to do it for yourself and do it for them to really be able to spend the time when it's necessary there. And 
I'm lucky with Eric and Annabella that we have great assistants in the program that if I need to go focus on myself for a bit, you know, I know that they're doing just as good of a job as if I would be doing it if I were there. You know, you have to treat yourself like an athlete, number one, which sometimes means, you know, that you need to, you know, be on top of your breasts, that you can't do the last thing that you want to do from a training standpoint. You need to trust those around you to be able to do things correctly because you've given them the right instruction too. And sometimes it means that you have to, you know, you have to really go and compartmentalize and focus on, you know, your job with your horses. But I try to, as best I can from the onset of the week there, I try to balance even our own show schedule around, you know, like not trying to pack in so many things at once. Or if I see conflicts ahead of time there, you know, there's sometimes, you know, what needs to happen, but other ways you can avoid it, which I think is important to have the foresight for those things. So you're not just kind of like, having it all pile on you in a moment you haven't prepared for it at all. That's, that's very important there. That being said, there's the flip side of it too, that I think it's also, you can put so much emphasis on your own riding and become so overwhelmed with the details of it. that I think it's actually healthy to kind of take a step back and have to go train and then just kind of get on the horse and ride sometimes, you know, obviously it's never that simple. And I'm a over, so, and for me, I'm an overanalyzer. So, you know, I, if I go to a, nation's cup show or to a world cup show and it's just myself and one or two horses there i have to keep myself occupied without the students there for the weekend yeah 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 definitely and it definitely helps to have a couple things going on so you're not you know freaking yourself out all day <laughs> yeah, yeah that's 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 a good point for sure what would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about I mean, there's two parts of it there, I think, is really knowing what's out there. I think that, again, kind of going back to where I was as a young rider, I do feel like, you know, that's something that was really important for me coming out of the zone in the country where there's still is only, you know, one computer-listed Grand Prix. Yeah, so for me, you know, really knowing what's out there and how can you bring that to younger riders to not just to inspire them, but to show them, you know, what they're working towards. And I think that, I would say it's a lot easier to get to the light of the end of the tunnel if you know what the light is. Totally. You know, if, you, if you know what you want to do, it's a lot easier to see it there. I think it's great for younger students to have the opportunity to come and see that they're even if they're not competing in, so that they know what they're striving for and they know what they're working towards. And it makes you know a lot of the things that we do, I think, make sense then. The other side of it, which I'm really big on, is the sports psychology side of it. I think that, you know, it's been hugely helpful for me. I've kind of looked into it differently the last few years, but you really, all the way around, you need to treat yourself and the horses like athletes there. And I think that you have to look at every aspect of how you can improve yourself, you know, whether that's through your own fitness, obviously through your own work, uh, riding and improving there. But, you know, so much of this is your mind and that that's really what controls everything there. And, you know, putting yourself in the best place that you can possibly be to get on a horse and go in and compete. You know, everybody loves just work harder, be tougher, do this. But at the end of the day, your mind needs to be in the best place it can be when you go into the competition ring and, and also to train at home. I think you see a lot of riders struggle with that, but it's in a weird way it becomes like they hear psychology and they think that that means therapy. If you look at the top athletes in other sports, whether it's, you know, all the golfers, you know, professional football players, I mean, LeBron James, every top athlete 
you know, and even a lot of business CEOs, uh, musicians, I mean, they all work with sports psychologists to put themselves, you know, and it's just, it's another layer of, you know, how can you improve and put yourself in the best position to be successful? And I think that, um, I, I think that some people, you bring that up and they kind of go, well, I don't have an issue with that. I don't get nervous. But it right. even if you don't get nervous, there's so many things you're not aware of that you can really help yourself with. And it's about finding the right person for everybody there. I think it's hugely important to success. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's something that uh, the equestrian role is finally, you know, seeing, uh, you see it more and more, but you yeah. totally are right. There's so many situations that I've experienced where you talk about a performance coach or a sports psychologist and people are like, whoa, like, I don't, yeah. I don't need to see a therapist. Like I don't have any problems, but yeah, it's kind of that, those subconscious things that you don't even realize that you're thinking or doing that might affect the end result for sure. Yeah. A lot of sports psychologists, they try to prescribe techniques and things you should do. I've tried to go a a different way of it, which is in the end, you know, we train and we work hard for this there, but in the end, you know, you can't be trying to think about the smallest things when you're on course. If you're in a class, you either, you know, for me as a professional, I know what I'm doing in there. For sure. Can I improve and get better? Yes. But, you know, and as a first student of mine, if they belong in a class that they're in, otherwise I wouldn't enter them in it. And so you need to believe that you belong in there and that you know what you're doing and be able to just trust your instincts and let your instincts take over. And if you need to fix your instincts, go back and fix them another day, but not be trying to, you know, micromanage your mind and micromanage, you know, trying to be to over control the moment. So I think that's when, uh, and myself included, you know, you, you make mistakes because of that. And I think that's a huge component of success. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Um, learned so much, and I know everyone will really enjoy it. So um, through everything going on, I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast, and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week.